the reason why I got into the cultural work was because I always felt, even in my early 20s, that the environmental crisis is not a problem with the environment, but a problem with our culture. This is Frontiers of Commoning with David Bollier. This is David Bollier with the Schumacher Center for New Economics with another episode of Frontiers of Commoning. My guest today is Paul Baines of the Great Lakes Commons, a project that has done a lot to reimagine how we can engage with the Great Lakes and protect them more effectively. Paul's been behind a number of innovative campaigns and efforts there to get a new approach to protecting water underway. Welcome, Paul. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. I'd really just like to talk a little bit about how the Great Lakes Commons got underway and why you saw the need for something like that. Yeah, well, I was inspired by others who started a couple of years uh, before me, I guess formally. There's groups in Canada like the Council of Canadians and Mark Barlow, who's written lots about water and water politics. And there's a few American groups like On the Commons and Food and Water Watch and Flow, which is the for love of water, and even the People's Water Board in Detroit. And so in, in 2011, or, or even a bit before, there were some conversations and some retreats. But in 2012, that's when I first went to my first gathering in uh, South Bend, Indiana, in which the organizers of that, Julie Risto and Alexa Bradley and others, you know, put together a real diverse crowd of water protectors and common commoners, either in the Great Lakes or with a connection to the Great Lakes. And that's how I first got involved. I read about this project, Great Lakes Commons, through a little booklet, white paper that Maud Barlow and On the Commons wrote. And I was just inspired because it just brought together so many of my interests, my existing interests around culture and environment and politics. But it also, I think, needed, you know, I felt I could bring a lot to it as well. And so I've been involved since 2012. I didn't start it, although I did start the Commons map, which I guess is one of the tools that we'll talk about today. But again, this idea of a Great Lakes Commons imagination, politic relationship is one that I've been thinking about for a while and I was uh, excited to get involved with and still am. So tell me what the idea was to do something different than conventional NGOs or water advocates. Yeah, what's interesting is I was probably... Well, my background is, is cultural studies, environmental studies, educational pedagogy. And in the early 90s, I was in university for environmental studies. And we actually did a case study on the Great Lakes in the early 90s. And then I never didn't really do environmental work many years after that. I was doing more stuff in the cultural field. But when I read Great Lakes Commons document in 2012, a light went on where I felt as if that approach wasn't working. That approach seemed old, stale, reactive whack-a-mole kind of um, work. And the reason why I got into the cultural work was because I always felt, even in my early 20s, that the environmental crisis is not a problem with the environment, but a problem with our culture and the ways in which we, we relate to the environment. And that if we're going to sort of so-called save the environment, we need to sort of restructure that culture. And so what I read about the Great Lakes crisis in 2012, after not having really thought about it in 15, 20 years, I thought, well, this is something different than, let's say, like a multi-stakeholder kind of, you know, trying to find this win-win solutions of environments and economy, of trying to host a sort of binational territorial war over this precious resource that is talked about from a recreational lens or from an economic lens 
or from a habitat lens. So that's the sort of the difference I feel for Great Lakes Commons is it's trying to create a different kind of story away from that sort of private resource to this idea of a shared inheritance that not only worked across the international border, but was also tapping into, you know, the sort of indigenous commons or the indigenous ways of relating to the lands and waters and to our treaty neighbors, uh, because that is also, I think, part and within a commons context, a commons framework, is this idea of treaty. And not just in terms of the European treaties or contracts around private property, but treaty really about lifelong, ongoing relationships with humans in the non-human world uh, based out of respect and non-ownership, and yet sort of common destiny. And so I just felt there was a richer ability to speak to these cultural issues in a Great Lake Commons framework than in a sort of restoration framework or a precious resource framework, or again, in these sort of trade wars of our water, their water, you know, bulk water. But we, we know that in yeah. those sorts of battles, you have established forums, you have hearings, you have legislatures, you have trade arenas. How do you begin to change the culture? That's kind of a wide open territory without sort of set arenas in which to do it. How did you begin that? Yeah, so we haven't really participated in those formal arenas from the get-go. We've been sort of networking with like-minded people, artists, uh, academics, frontline campaigners, who are generally sort of um, fighting their way into those arenas and often ignored. And so we've been sort of trying to gather those voices and gather those movements under this sort of newer story of a generational commons, an indigenous commons, by a regional commons, and think about what types of projects and experiences that we could initiate and support. And so I could talk about the, the variety of those types of projects because otherwise I felt like we would just be reacting to the mainstream system. I, I, you know, I can speak a bit about this framework of working within, against, and beyond the current system. And I just, I feel like working against the current system by participating in those types of, you know, international forums or those policy perspectives um, would use up our, our resources and our energy and would, we wouldn't get past just fighting against what we didn't want. There are generally, I would, from my, you know, observation, there's probably about 10 or more Great Lakes wide um, events, conferences, conversations a year. And I would say maybe at, at best one of those or one speaker within a hundred of those one conferences is talking about governance. So often they're talking about the particular issues, the management and the mitigation of the host of issues that affect the Great Lakes and all the players of those Great Lakes. And that's important work. But the issue of governance is really almost never talked about in terms of who gets the authority to make decisions and what ethic those authorities, sorry, what legitimacy those authorities have and what is the, the water ethic which those authorities value. And so we really didn't feel just by participating and reacting within those more formalized settings, we were going to get very far. And so creating our own projects and our own platforms seemed to be the way to use the energy we had while building an alternative story at the same time. That points to precisely a lot of the problems that transformational change puts you on the margin, but that's where you need to be if you're going to have the integrity of message and approach. So tell me how in a world in which foundations and respectable opinion can easily dismiss you because you're not in those reputable centers of power and politics, how do you begin to create different forms of power to move transformational change forward? 
Yeah, well, one of the first things we did uh, in 2012, we agreed that we would co-create a, a commons charter. At first, it was called a social charter, but then it was called a commons charter because we didn't want to just sort of have to react to the language and mission statements and lofty goals of the American or Canadian governments. And so the commons charter sort of maps out those intentions. And we've been building a community of charter supporters since 2014 when the charter was launched. And so I think having a clear and unified vision of what we want versus what we don't want was one of those first steps. And many of the projects that we've developed since then are trying to build out from that vision. You know, it's just a 500-word vision, and we've, we've shared that, and we've read that aloud in groups across the Great Lakes and used that as our touchstone. A few years later after that, we sort of put together a toolkit a set of resources to sort of, again, sort of animate and illustrate how that charter could be used in a variety of ways. But we've been developing sort of projects. And so shared experiences, a lot of our work is over a large scale. And it's we don't have the resources to always be face-to-face. And so, but it's important. And so in 2016, we hosted a project called the Journeying Project, in which we were partnering with existing groups that were journeying the waters, either by sacred water walks or canoes or cycling or running or even performing a a play about grief and the Great Lakes across the basin. And so by partnering with those groups, not only were we able to extend our range of people and of place, but we created a sense of unity between those projects within this sort of commons charter vision. And we we shared in that common experience for that year of witnessing and being a part of the waters and to accompany that experience and to guide that experience we printed and distributed a thousand, you know, sort of journey guides, which had words and thoughts from each of the partners, but also had prompts uh, for questions such as like, how are you sharing or showing your reciprocity to the waters? How are you respecting your ancestors by, by doing this journey? And, uh, and so just trying to, again, encourage and prompt this experience with these, with these intentions around ancestry and reciprocity, which again is never talked about for most Great Lakes um, you know, restoration um, policy perspectives. And so by doing that, not just talking about it, but actually doing it was a key thing. And so the toolkit, and so there are various other projects where we are trying to shift the values, trying to shift the conversations, trying to create different kinds of questions. I could go on about the different projects, but basically through, through that charter and through shared experiences and shared platforms, that's how we've been trying to use the energy we have versus waste it in forums that aren't even open to these kinds of conversations. Well, I want to talk about some of those projects, but let's start with the charter that you established and how that basically helped bring people together. And tell me exactly who some of these people were who you got together to essentially launch a new cultural approach to the Great Lakes. Yeah, it was a two-year process and between 2012 and 2014. And through that, there was a bioregional sort of editing team sort of drafting this. A lot of it was led by an artist, activist, healer in Minneapolis named Ricardo Morales-Levins. And he was inspired by a lot of charter work and human rights uh, work out of South Africa, uh, I guess in the 80s and 90s. And so he, his energy and, 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 and uh, vision was a key part of that. He continues to be part of the Great Lakes Commons work. Other editors and contributors to that were Sue Chiblo um, from Garden River First Nation on the north shores of uh, Lake Huron and Superior, who's done a lot of work around water policy and women's role in Anishinaabek um, nationhood 
and for water protection. Um, Emma Louie from the Council of the Canadians, who's the, the main sort of water person in Canada. You know, Alexa and Julie, who I mentioned earlier, I personally was not part of the charter writing piece. Frank Erbegishik, who's the president of the United Tribes in Michigan. And so a real regional basis of, of sharing ideas and thinking about what that vision was and just whittling it down to its current form. And then, you know, we have struggled with launching and like sort of trying to build a strategy for getting support for the charter. You know, we're not trying to drive a petition. We are all probably pretty familiar, not only with petitions, but those platforms that sort of help share and forward and uh, count the numbers of people who've signed the petition. We haven't had that strategy, nor are we petitioning governments to do anything. We are, in some ways, many ways, petitioning ourselves. And we're not just asking people to put their name on for this charter. We're asking them, what are they going to do to uh, animate this charter vision. And we've had some, we've had, you know, hundreds of people, almost 400 people sort of do this uh, over the years, you know, but the strategy and the resources to really launch this thing more publicly and then to have a strategy, well, then what to do, what to do next or beyond that. You know, we're continuously learning and sort of building a strategy around that. But that's been the charter process around putting together a vision that is bioregional, that is linking social justice and water justice issues within, with Indigenous rights and Indigenous access to water, looking at the role of, of citizens within these settler states and nations, but also within a context of colonization, again, Indigenous authority, and thinking about this intergenerational connection that we've inherited the waters and are passing on the waters. So again, many commons principles around should have shared use and shared benefit and shared risk, you know, while also highlighting some of the more particularities of the Great Lakes context. And so we're really happy with how the charter um, was written. You know, in 2019, you know, there could be a conversation for ways to change it a little bit or edit it. The world has changed in many ways since 2012. And, and for instance, in Canada, we've had the rise of the Idle No More movement. We've also had much more exposure to and witnessing of the devastation in Detroit and in Flint with their water mismanagement by their governments and authorities and the ways in which you know, the financialization of water has had a more direct impact. And so, that's the charter. That's We encourage people to sort of take a look at it, even got a section where you can say, like, what would you like to add to the charter? We're really proud that our support for the charter, uh, while there is international support, generally, there's a lot of support on both sides of the sort of so-called international border between Canada and the States, which again, most water groups operate in either one of those jurisdictions. Very few groups operate on both sides of that, which is really encouraging. So it's kind of a bottom-up assertion of a different vision. Tell me how that's grown, evolved, diversified, and what kind of impact it has had, if yet, on official policymaking. Yeah, um, official policymaking, I can't speak too much to that. In the last couple of years, Great Lakes Commons has been started and founded uh, an alliance that's looking at drinking water in Michigan and Ontario, connecting the issues of Nestle's water extraction for water for profit with the sort of lack of water for life on First Nations reserves in Ontario without clean access to uh, tap water and obviously the, the residents of Flint and Detroit for various reasons. And so the first conference we hosted as an alliance was called Strengthening Our Great Lakes Commons. And that was the first time that a non-Great Lakes Commons event was called Great Lakes Commons. And so that was an interesting sort of, in my opinion, step towards recognizing the power of the language of commons and of the ways in which it unites different issues across different spaces. 
you know, we've had we've had a little bit of media coverage and a little bit of exposure in magazines or in little videos. That, but that hasn't really been our goal. One of the markers of success I would point to was a couple of years ago, I made a short video to promote an upcoming sacred water walk. That's a, that's a women-led, Anishinaabek-led water walk, and the lead water walker, the late Josephine Mandemon. And I made a video with her about her vision about our responsibilities to water. And that was not only shown at her retirement party about a year or so ago, it's also our most highest viewed sort of video. It's also been featured and is currently at the Art Gallery of Ontario as part of an exhibit on storytelling and the four elements. And so we've seen our role also as Great Lakes Commons, or I've seen my role within Great Lakes Commons, to support and hold up and celebrate water leaders who are doing the work and the role of Great Lakes Commons is to sort of connect those people and campaigns and to learn from them and to sort of see ourselves as hosting a conversation around water protection. Uh, the Charter obviously is a clear vision for that, but we are also aware that there are people also just doing the work and we, we want to support that work directly through, you know, gathering in Flint like we did or making videos celebrating other water protectors. So that's also been part of our strategy of how we how we position ourselves within these larger things and you had mentioned your campaigns such as the mapping project on the website and storytelling and even a uh, short-term currency tell me about some of these projects and how you see them helping to grow the culture of commoning with respect to great lakes Yep, the oldest one was the Commons map. And we're actually currently going to be doing an edit edit of the map because it is, again, seven years old as a platform. But the idea is the same. It's really to create a sense of belonging uh, to the Great Lakes and to the people around the Great Lakes. So often we're divided by, oh, I live on Toronto or I live in Ontario or I live in Traverse City. Um, but people just try and say, I live in the Great Lakes. I'm part of the Great Lakes. And no matter what part of the Great Lakes I may live in. So that idea of belonging is really key to, I think, building a commons movement that's bioregionally based. And the commons map was a, is a digital storytelling platform that can crowdsource and collect, collect people's text, photo, videos around their connection or questions around being a Great Lakes commons. And so I started that, I founded that, and it's, a, it's also an Ontario nonprofit. And that was also using open source software, Ushahidi which we may be changing, but that's what's been built on for the last seven years. And so that idea of telling our own story, not letting, not putting our voices just on Facebook or just putting our, our voices just on one group's website, but having a space for all these different groups, either official groups or just grassroots individuals to have an equal playing field of putting their ideas on a map that situates either them or the issue they're speaking about. Because so many of us don't even really know where you know, um, Georgian Bay is, or we don't even know where, what, where, what major rivers are feeding the, the lakes or all the rest of it, or the, all the different contours of this geography. And so mapping was just a really good way to sort of get to know this place. And so that continues to grow and to sort of be used as a tool. Uh, we also, people's names, whoever creates the story, their name and contact information is there. And I know the map's been used by people who want to find other commoners um, so it's also been used as a bit of a database or a Rolodex for finding like-minded people that we've allowed to happen. And so the values of belonging has been key, but the 
again, we continue to work on this idea of shifting the conversation around around values. And one of those was the sort of the Great Lakes Commons currency project, which was a pilot project. We were lucky to get a little bit of seed funding from Cosmos Journal to think about the money system and to think about what is money for and isn't really money itself also a commons that we've agreed upon as a society to give value to, to get stuff done, and how broken our money system is for getting what needs to be done, done. And so the experiment was really about thinking, well, what if money is about value? Uh, What's most valuable? Protecting water. So how do we give gratitude and exchange gifts based on a please or a thank you for protecting water? So a thank you, if I were to give you, David, a, a currency note, to say thank you for protecting water, that would be something that you may have done in the past. And it's not up to the state or the bank to decide what action is valuable. I can decide that, you know, by your work and raising awareness around the commons and interviewing us about the water commons, I could say thank you. You're protecting the water. And that is a value. And I will give you one or more of these currency notes. As a please, I could also use the language of please. And that is giving you uh, a currency note as a way to pay it forward that, you know, maybe you haven't been working on water, but I'm going to ask you to reduce your consumption of bottled water, or I'm going to ask you to get to know your local watershed, or I'm going to ask you maybe please, you know, find out how we can raise some money for this local water walk. And so here I'm, I'm sort of, you know, inviting you into a conversation around whatever you're going to, you know, whatever value you can be creating in the world, how is that value supporting and um, making sure that we're protecting water. And so we made 5,000 of these currency notes and sent them to our charter supporters and to gave them out at various events. And we had a strategy around distributing those and collecting the stories on our comments map about that. And so we were just asking the question, like, what is really the value of money about? What is it based on? How do we shift that basis of value from, you know, basically either it used to be a gold standard. Now it's just a floating sort of currency where money is used as a, as a way to make more money. And so really returning the, the sense of that money should be there to, or a currency should be there to protect what matters most. And through these exchanges of pleases and thank yous, we were also building community across the Great Lakes and giving people who had signed the charter or come to one of our events a chance to engage and share with one another. And I think just having a little currency note, kind of like a coupon in your wallet, is just a great, you know, little sort of marketing card for the Great Lakes Commons work itself, which had more information on it. And so I think that looking at the value of money, you know, so we have our own currency project, which was a pilot, which we'd love to to reboot and have sort of reform and, and launch again. But hopefully by doing that, we're also raising questions about mainstream economics so that when people are, are trading either with credit or with the current Canadian or US dollars, we're still mindful of how disconnected those systems are from life support systems. And all of this sounds really like a lot, almost using art and culture to expand our imagination and the sense of the possibilities. And that's really, if we're going to have political change, it has to start there. And so I'm kind of impressed with how you've opened up these spaces for different ways of people thinking about themselves and their relationships to a shared resource like water. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's been several inspirations, and I think I, I'm sort of adapting. You know, the the mapping project was an adaptation of a crisis mapping tool in Africa and for Haiti elections and all the rest of it. You know, there's a lot of ceremonial work and ritual work and reciprocity work being done. Let's just say by the Anishinaabe water walkers. 
you know, in many ways, this currency project was a way to sort of create a little bit of ritual or meaning through the exchange of these notes. And we also had a project called the Water Friendship Project, which was also a pilot project for one year, where I worked with water protectors in three different locations to ask the question, what does a good relationship with water look like? And what kind of indicators or patterns or signals can we create that would help policymakers, educators, even campaigners to think about how are we centering our relationship with water as the the marker of success? Still to this day and still amongst water protecting organizations and, and advocacy campaigns, we are still talking about the quality or quantity of water. Uh, as an object. And so often when we're thinking about well-being and we're thinking about alternative indicators, and there's been some great work on this idea of looking at alternative indicators to GDP, you know, we can talk about ratios of teachers to students in classrooms. We can talk about how safe people feel walking in their neighborhoods. We can talk about other ways of measuring social dynamics between, you know, living parts or active subjects and in the social sciences. But when it comes to the environment, we're still stuck in this resource H2O molecule cubic meter language of of environmental stock and flow, biodiversity counts, which is important uh, to do uh, as we've seen, you know, the sort of drop in species, the rise of species extinction. However, the work that we're doing in terms of reconnecting with our, our responsibilities around water I just felt there was a lack of depth and and sort of um, systemization or, or optimization of, okay, so how do we know that our relationship with water is weak or strong or getting stronger or getting weaker? And so through this Water Friendship Project, we've sort of been developing some key nine teachings around what are those key relationships look like, first of all. And then we're trying to now, in a phase two or phase three, think about what are the particular you know, signals or patterns that would say, okay, so how often or do you trust the water coming out of your tap? Or do you know the names of the three nearest water bodies? Or both knowledge, experience, trust you know, what are the ways in which you're relating or seeing your relationship to the waterways? These are things that we'd like to sort of also do more work on so that we're basically just more literate and more conscious that we need to protect our relationship with water as much as just the water itself. And so that was, an, I think, an innovative project that we've had lots of good traction on. And we just, you know, obviously looking for more more capacity. But I think as we're seeing more research done on water personhood uh, and the legal personhood, and water beingness. I just heard a great podcast about glaciers as beings. I think then we can use this water friendship project to think about more in depth our these relationality, which again is, is much more of an indigenous worldview of seeing the world through the lens of relationships and not as objects. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, in my own work, I've talked about the need for an onto shift, an ontological shift in which we get into a relational mentality with each other people, with the world, with future generations. And you mentioned the idea of the personhood of water, the beingness of water. I know that in New Zealand, for example, a river recently was given legal personality so that it could be protected by the indigenous peoples there. So let's talk a little bit more about this ontological shift, this worldview shift in which some might call it the spiritual dimensions or at least the living dimensions of water and ecosystems are really given full account. 
Yes, please. Let's go. <laughs> well, tell me how you've engaged with that, because that's not something that can necessarily be preached on a corner. You know, how do you bring this to the foreground in the culture? How do you elicit people's desire to reimagine their relationships, to acknowledge relationships? Yeah, I'm a student in many ways of these things. I I basically just been listening with my head and heart for years on the indigenous, either Anishinaabe or Haudenosaunee Confederacy or other indigenous nations, you know, obviously we've seen what continues to be inspired by the activists at Standing Rock. You know, I think we've we've got the sort of memes, you know, of water is life, water is sacred, protect the sacred. And so I think these things have gone more mainstream in the past few years. And so I think the legal strategies of the rights of nature rights to nature, water personhood, have been a cultural, have been a legal tool coming out of a cultural shift. My fear is that the legal, the legality of these things will take precedent, will override the essence or the what started that in terms of looking for, again, the ontological sort of difference. These are not just pragmatic campaign differences in which we're just trying to use all the legal tools we have. I think the part of the power of these legal personhood campaigns is to also open up and hope, hopefully help us reimagine these larger relationships. And so after years of seeing some of these examples globally around rights of rivers or waterways here in the Great Lakes, we just had a passing of a resolution for the citizens in Toledo looking at the personhood of Lake Erie and those who harm Lake Erie can be held accountable. And so that's our latest example here in the Great Lakes of this legal strategy coming out of a social shift. What what response so, has that had so far? Oh, well, as you can imagine, the agricultural industry and the state itself are fighting it tooth and nail and are outspending the, legally. They're gonna, they've raised already 100 times more money legally to fight this in court. And so we've seen how the courts can work both sides of these debates. You can talk, look, we can look to pipelines as an example. And so I think there's, that's the work. I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a campaigner firsthand. I'm not a fundraiser. So I'm watching and, and sort of seeing how that rolls out. I see my role and I see Great Lakes Commons continuing to create the start and respond to a conversation on what does it mean? What does personhood actually mean? Not just legally, but as a relationship, as an ongoing relationship. And, and there I'm a student from indigenous leaders, from knowledge holders who speak and who act, more importantly, who act as if water is alive. And so when I've been on water walks, I've I've heard when the water is taken from the waterway, how we you know we're orphaning the water. I've mentioned this idea of the water having a personality, having a beingness, that it has its own right to be. It's not just about environmental services or ecological services. And so I think there was also a Canadian petition launched for the personhood rights of the Great Lakes in Canada by a young man named Edward George, uh, Anishinaabe guy from Lake Shores of Lake Huron. And I've continued to work with him and we're working on a project right now called Living Great Lakes, in which we're going to be hosting a conversation and a gathering this fall in which we're showing up to this gathering, not as ourselves, not as part of our nonprofits, not with our sort of bag of issues, of water issues that we are generally sort of trying to get attention for. We are coming to this water gathering around water governance as a part of that watershed itself, as a representative of or a delegate of that watershed. And so for me, this is not only an innovative, but a sort of profound shift in thinking about 
how we look at governance and how we see ourselves as part of the same watershed. And because many of these legal strategies ultimately have to have human representatives or guardians to speak on their behalf. And this is what's common in all of these legal cases. I think the challenge is going to be moving forward and the work that we're doing right now is how do we start to practice taking the Indigenous leadership? How do we start to practice what does it mean to speak on behalf of a water being or water with legal personhood? How does that representative and how is that representative being informed by what is the voice of that? And so I guess at a popular example, people are familiar with, you know, the Lorax in which he speaks for the trees. And so I guess what we're trying to do is we're sort of doing Lorax training here where how do we get people, both leaders and, and, their, and their communities to start to sort of listen to and think about, again, we are 70% water. The watershed that surrounds us is within us. And so we're also redefining what the buyer, what the watershed is. It's not just the rivers and lakes and the aquifers, it's the water in the atmosphere and the water within us. And so I think that ontological shift gets us in some ways even much richer way of thinking about these interrelationships, that my beingness and the water within me is interconnected with the beingness and the water within the atmosphere and the and the river. And so I think this is huge um, when we think about um, this idea of responsibility and governance and so we're just starting this off. We're, we're hosting a gathering in the fall, and we're inviting people to come show up as a delegate of the watershed. And we are going to, in some ways, practice our level of commoning and commons as this infused way of thinking about beingness. And I really don't know how it's going to go. I was going to say, um, how does this, it, there's a yeah. potential cultural clash, at least in terms of learning from some of the traditions and rituals of indigenous peoples who have had this sort of relationship with living systems and water, and those of white moderns, perhaps suburbanites, how do they begin to acquire that sensibility in an authentic way and not simply a play-acting or pretend way? How do you cultivate that? Yeah. The toolkit we did with for the charter, I think, it tries to break down some of these big concepts and into sort of what are the practices. You know, the terms water is sacred, water is alive. What we do to the water, we do to ourselves. These things have gotten more mainstream. And so I think as they've entered into the public consciousness, I think we're now sort of stuck with the question like, well, how does that how does that actually work? And so I think unlike many other sort of energy systems or climate justice issues, I think water and food are, are excellent mediums and elements to start to think about these, these connections of reciprocity. So I think reciprocity really is, is, is a key part of that. And so just asking people, you know, the, what are you doing for your watershed? How are you reciprocating what water has given you? I think that could turn on two lights. It turns on the light of like, oh, what, what, what's water giving me? I never even thought about what water is giving me. And I never even thought about what I must return. And so we've shifted our language a little bit or added on that we're not just talking about a commons, we're not a shared commons, we're talking about a sacred gift. I know we've spoken before about commons being this combination of duty and gift. And so we're really trying to put that gift ethic back into it because nobody wants to not reciprocate a gift. And I think that's human nature. And we see that happening throughout the calendar year. And so I think if we start to shift our language away from resources and commodities um, and assets and uh, H2O into commons and responsibilities and gifts, um, then I think we can start to sort of think about what are our, what are our responsibilities and how do we reciprocate 
that gift. And so I think seeing ourselves as part of a larger watershed, I'm much more concerned with laws that are happening in Michigan around that affect water than I am in British Columbia. I'm, I'm on the Great Lakes and I'm downstream I'm from Lake Michigan. And so I think the, these are the ways in which voters, residents can pay attention to what's happening in their watershed a lot more closely than what might be happening in their, in their state or in their country. And so I think that's a huge shift. And I think where that goes is a frustration. And we're seeing this play out already. There's a frustration that the Canadian government wants to bury nuclear waste on the shores of Lake Huron. And the folks in Michigan are up in arms because they're just across the way there. And they have no political voice in that decision. Similarly, there's a Canadian corporation who has a 60-year-old oil pipeline, tar sands pipeline, running through Michigan. And the folks in Michigan don't want it. And the folks in Canada don't want it, but they have no power to stop it. They have no legal or, or, or civic power to stop this sort of going through. And so we're seeing these, as these pipeline projects connect various political jurisdictions, and as the impacts of water contamination flows across political jurisdictions, hopefully we can tap into people's frustration that the things that affect them, um, they don't have any voting control over. And we're seeing this also play out in climate change. And so hopefully these are some practical ways of belonging, of bioregionalism, of we are water, uh, of thinking about our reciprocity to, to water. These are some ways that the public in the, in the suburbs or in the cities or in the country can, can start to change their, their relationship with water. Well, I would imagine just the mere public witness of this different sensibility has a real impact. And it starts to develop a cultural resonance, which is arguably the more powerful way of reaching people's hearts and minds than uh, talking about resources or money necessarily. For sure. And we've also, I mean, we haven't even spoken about the sort of faith communities. You know, I feel the Great Lakes Commons has a lot more traction and draw with faith communities who are also, you know, who've also historically and continually to, to animate water as sacred and, and relate to water as sacredness. And so I think there's a much larger potential for public engagement on, on sacred gift and shared commons than there is about resource rights. Very few people actually live, you know, in cottages on waterfront property or applying for, for permits to take water. But all of us have that sort of more a relationship with water if that's sort of centered further. And so I'm hoping that our this idea of water beingness and water sacredness can expand our community. And also, to be honest, I've heard a lot of private people, I've had a lot of private conversations with people who've been doing the water resource work for decades, and they're burnt out. They are looking for alternatives. They are stuck. There are too many issues that they do not have time to or money to address. And as we can see on a larger political scale, the leadership has taken off, running, it's, it's run away, it's left the building in many ways uh, in the corridors. And so there is a vacuum and a, and a crisis of, of leadership around water. And I think that burnout and that frustration amongst the sort of more mainstream water resource folks, I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be a, a more of an alignment going forward around some of these beingness and some of these water friendship and some of these water reciprocity pieces, because I think we've exhausted our resources and our, our appeals to the public to just slow down the harm. And so we've also been inspired by Joanna Macy's work, who talks about having to both, you know, reduce the harm, uh, which we've been doing a lot of, and there are some successes. We've, you know, we've banned microbeads uh, in the Great Lakes uh, in Canada and the United States that were polluting our waterways. 
we've brought back and restored some fisheries and some waterways from their worst parts in the 70s. But we also need to build new institutions. We need to build new new um, think tanks and new uh, decision-making bodies that I, I would suggest should be women and Indigenous-led around that are also bioregional. We need to build those institutions and we need to sort of put in place the types of measurements and indicators that respect water relationship. And we also need to shift this consciousness. Otherwise, those new institutions won't survive and won't take root. And so I think we need to do all three simultaneously. And I'm hoping that some of those bigger groups with more resources can bring their expertise around water quality and water quantity and water policy and help us create these new institutions that put uh, Indigenous relationships and responsibilities and treaties at the core. You know, it reminds me of the late 60s when the public interest in environmental and consumer movements were getting going. That was associated with a new discourse, and it was also associated with new types of organizations, advocacy organizations that acted as representatives of the public in formal policy circles. My point is, any significant shift has to take place at at those different levels, from worldview to organization to discourse, all at once, because it is a new perspective. And we've seen that perhaps the old perspective has simply run its course. Uh, The failure of the regulatory process and a lot of nation-state actions to control these are simply not working. So I'm thrilled to see the kind of... um, innovation of perspective and organizational structures that you seem to be pioneering. Yeah, and a, and a part of and infused with and, you know, it's it's a very, it's a, yeah, it's, a, I love this work because I both get to learn a lot and then share what I've learned. I'm also working with the Blue Communities Project for the Federation of Sisters of St. Joseph, and this is a federation of Catholic nuns who have recently also then been inspired, been inspiring another large group of the Catholic Women's League who want to do more work around water, inspired by Pope Francis's care for our common home uh, environmental sort of document. And so we can see this blue communities sort of network. We can see the ongoing work by the sacred water walkers. We can see the, the water justice movement that I mentioned, the Water is Life Alliance that we're working with and, and sort of trying to get going. Doing this, doing this work, you know, one of the things I've been the, again, back to the framework idea within against of like the harming and institutions is also this idea of what is water justice and trying to get more clear on that. Often we're speaking about looking at who gets what, you know, Nestle gets all this water for free and, you know, can other communities, marginalized communities, communities of color, indigenous communities don't get the water they need. And how do we fix that? And that's important. But often what's the water justice piece, which is, I think is less talked about, which we're also trying to sort of highlight and work on is who gets to make the rules, who has authority over making those rules, and then how does society at large authenticate or, yeah, promote certain types of authority and legitimize certain types of authority. And I think we're seeing that also percolating throughout society here and globally, where it's not just who gets what, and it's not just this rule or that rule. It's this larger question of legitimacy around who should be in, how is power uh, created and who gave these people that power in the first place and where should power really sit? You know, how do we build not just a more democratic because uh, we've seen the abuses of democracy and to legitimize all, and to sort of jerry-rig all kinds of consequences in which money influencing and you know and also fake news influencing democracy. I think it needs to, we need to go beyond just fifty-one percent mentality and thinking about what are more 
generational ways of being inclusive and democratic. Right now, the next generation has no vote in these things. We have you know, government councils who are elected for four years making a decision about burying nuclear waste, which will be toxic forever, 100,000 years half-life. And so I think the crisis is not just in how do we make the existing democracy better? I think we also need to think about what is a real democracy in terms of generational um, connection, a real democracy in terms of the rights and beingness of, of non-human life, and also the integrity of the watershed as a whole or the ecosystem as a whole that we're all interconnected with. I think that larger level of, I guess, what some of, you know, earth democracy, uh, some would call it, I think is, is, is on the rise because this is the shift, maybe the building on some of those 60s examples you mentioned, I think the issues and everything's more connected, it's a bit more drastic. Um, we're, we're well more informed uh, on many levels. Uh, we have that experience. But I do think these, these retooling. Lastly, the, the comments piece is so vital for us to think about connecting across issues and thinking about governance and thinking about intergenerational responsibility in a bioregional context. But I also want to stress that Commons does sort of conflict a little bit in terms of its inc inclusivity with working on commons in a settler settler state, settler states on, on Turtle Island, which is stolen land by European cultures and sort of export nations. And so I think there's work to be done around creating a sense of inclusivity and sharedness within a context of decision-making that privileges um, Indigenous authority throughout this process. And so I also feel like that is a key part of the work that we're doing, that I think the world that have different relationships with Indigenous peoples and, and the histories and the violence and the, and the sort of the ways in which those nations or states came to be. All I'm most familiar with Canada and the United States. And so we're trying to build not only an inclusive shared commons for all the residents who live here and the generations that came before and after, but also trying to recenter the lost Indigenous authority that was taken away. Well, I want to thank you for your work with Great Lakes Commons in trying to expand the scope of this sensibility as well as its effectiveness. And I want to appreciate you. I want to thank you for sharing your insights with us today. So uh, good luck in the coming years, and I hope to hear more of your progress in the future. Thanks, David, and thanks for all your ongoing work in this area and your curiosity. And we will have some updates in the fall after our Living Great Lakes projects. And if anybody listening to this wants to sort of think about a next stage for the currency project or for the water friendship project or for updating our mapping project, we're always looking for contributors and collaborators. So yeah, thanks for some expo more exposure. I'll make sure that uh, the contact information and the website is available with this podcast. Great. Much thanks. Thanks so much, Paul. Take care, everyone. See you, David. Bye-bye.